submarine themed podcast exciting and new come aboard we're expecting you set a course for adventure your mind on a new romance and of course silent movie information Hello everyone and welcome back to the high and low seas of the Golden Silent Films podcast. These doldrums of winter make everyone here long for that crisp ocean air, drink in hand as the Christopher Cross blasts ever so smoothly out of the tape deck. Whilst this short isn't exactly yacht rock, it certainly is fun. The genesis of this episode can be traced squarely to the crack research team and interns here at the Golden Silent Films podcast. You see, I was telling them I said, we are in our third season and still, still, we haven't done anything chaplain related. My orders to them were to bring back a chaplain related topic for all of you fine listeners out there. Needless to say, they listened. Perhaps a little too well, though. What they brought back was the 1915 short A Submarine Pirate, starring Sidney Chaplin, a literal chaplain relative. In the future, I shall endeavor to be more specific with any and all instructions given to our various crack teams of researchers and interns, but as things stand now, prepare to dive into a submarine pirate. Before we fully submerge, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, please join Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date information on this little show. And for all of you land lovers out there on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One, or just search for Golden Silence Cast, and you will find us. And these sites and screen names will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. And we would love to have you on board. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and information, upcoming episode information, and a lot of other fun and cool silent movie-related material. And also, you're going to get great photos of a pair of official show cats, so I hope you don't mind that. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, do leave a review, a rating, or both. All those ratings and reviews really help quite a bit. Recently, the show just sailed past the 5,000 listen mark, and we hope to keep that number moving up and up. Live your best review-leaving life and help our little show grow. Whether getting us more exposure in the vast depths of the podcast world, or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can seemingly be spotty at times if you are subscribed you will never miss an episode and the moment we release new content it will be downloaded straight to your brain via your listening device of choice then we have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe for this third season and we do not want you to miss a second so as we take to the seas we will also be taking to youtube for the viewing of this nautical adventure there's a handful of versions of a submarine pirate out and about for your streaming consumption one version I found had some music, public domain I suspect, anyway the chosen music was incredibly distracting to be honest for me. I actually ended up just watching a version with no music or sound, which worked way better for my viewing experience. But with all that having been said, this flick is pretty accessible and totally worth checking out. One thing that was constant through the different versions I checked out was the picture qualities were all pretty good for a 1915 picture, so good, good stuff on that front. Since this episode exists because of its star, let's kick things off with that man of the hour, Sid Chaplin. Before starting work on this episode, I only knew of one Chaplin, and it's no surprise in that it's the same Chaplin that pretty much everyone knows, but it was a wild yet fascinating discovery 
to find out there is a whole subdivision of chaplain relations out there acting their little hearts out. And it was even more eye-opening to realize what a large impact Sid would have on the career of his younger brother, Charlie. But we will get to that in due time and a lot more fun facts. But right now, let's start with the basics. Sidney John Hill was born on March 16, 1885 at 57 Brandon Street in Lambeth, South London, to the unmarried 19-year-old Hannah Hill. But the father, his identity has never really been verified. But a year later, his mother married Charles Chaplin Sr., and the latter became his legal guardian. Sidney's surname was changed to Chaplin. Hannah and Charles would have a son together named Charlie. That's the Charlie that we all know, and he was born on April 16, 1889. Sid would say, I was born of theatrical parents. My mother was a prima donna in Gilbert and Sullivan's operas, and my father was an actor of great versatility. At the age of 12, I produced and staged several plays at school. At 16, I played in Walter Howard's military drama, The Two Little Drummer Boys, touring in England. From then on, I continued in dramatic companies and played Sid Prince the Burglar in Charles Froman's production of Sherlock Holmes, appearing before the late King Edward in Queen Alexandra. According to the biographical section of the incredibly informative charliechaplin.com, we learn about the dark days and hard work both youngsters endured to get to where they are. The article explains, When poverty and dep deprivation struck the tightly knit family, both Sidney and Charlie Chaplin spent some of their darkest days in workhouses. Young as they were, both boys did whatever they could to help their mother. At the age of 12, Sidney was sent to a training ship called Exmouth, and subsequently started to work as a steward on various shipping expeditions. Returning from one of his voyages in 1903, during which he became very ill, he found his mother committed to the mental hospital and his brother Charlie Chaplin living on the streets. Determined to change their lives for the better, with every penny saved from his shipping job, Sidney decided to enter the theaters, as did Charlie. In 1905, Sidney and Charlie worked briefly together in one of their first stage appearances, Sherlock Holmes. Sid would be cast as a villain in that production. Business picked up in 1906, however, when the older brother secured a gig and contract with English theater and music hall maven Fred Carnot and his troupe of comedians. Having landed such a sweet gig, he worked hard to bring Charlie into the company just a couple years later. Charlie never quite achieved the same sort of fame Sid did as a principal comedian for that company, but as we all know now, in the long run, Charlie, I would say, probably surpassed him a little bit as an actor, director, and producer. Now turning back to charliechaplin.com, we learn a bit more about the brothers and their time with Carno and his comedy team. The website reads, What gave Sidney Chaplin a real break was his contract with Fred Carno's Speechless Comedians in 1906 one of the most famous and successful entertainment troupes in England. Sidney was so successful with Carno that he became their leading comedian. Two years later, he recommended Charlie Chaplin and helped him land a job with Carno, which eventually led Charlie to the United States. As Charlie was negotiating his Keystone contract in Hollywood, he suggested Sidney be asked to join the company. Sid and his wife Minnie Chaplin arrived in California in October of 1914. Sid made a few comedies there, including the comedy short A Submarine Pirate in 1915, which we will be diving to momentarily. Second to Tilly's Punctured Romance, this was the most financially successful comedy Keystone ever made. Later, when Charlie Chaplin was to leave Keystone, he suggested Sidney as his replacement, explains charliechaplin.com. 
Sidney Chaplin made a dozen comedies there and found success with a character he called Gussel. With Charlie Chaplin's rise to stardom, Sidney was soon handling the majority of Charlie's business affairs, negotiating most of his big contracts and appearing in a few films during the first national era, including A Dog's Life, Payday, The Pilgrim, and the famous Shoulder Arms. In his later films, Sidney Chaplin enjoyed wide popularity for his comedy performances in Charlie's Aunt and The Better Olay. Following this success, Sidney decided to leave the screen to negotiate for his brother Charlie's next contract, one that would hopefully be an improvement over his past deals. I then left the Keystone Company and became my brother's business manager and negotiated some of the biggest salaried contracts ever made, besides playing several parts in his pictures, Sid would later recount. By the mid-teens, our dynamic duo would soon become a talented trio as another sibling emerged on the scene. After Charlie achieved worldwide fame in 1915, the brothers were contacted by their half-brother Wheeler Dryden, whose father had told him of the connection. His father had removed Wheeler from their mother as an infant and brought him up separately. Wheeler was also an actor, and the brothers reunited in Hollywood in 1918 after they all immigrated to the United States. They occasionally worked together at Charlie Chaplin's studio through the 1950s. In amongst the family reunion, Sid was still tearing it up on behalf of his brother Charlie. After getting him a $500,000 contract with Mutual in 19, February of 1916, he secured Charlie Chaplin his first million-dollar contract in June of 17, that being with First National Pictures. Not long after, Sid was handling the majority of Charlie's business affairs, in addition to further contract negotiations. Even though Sid was wheeling and dealing, he still found some time to appear on screen. Sid appeared in a few films during this national era, including, like we mentioned earlier, Payday and The Pilgrim. Sid banked his own million-dollar contract, though, from famous players Lasky in 1919, but a series of unfortunate events resulted in his making only one film, and that would be King Queen Joker in 1921. He disappeared from the screens once again. Now, with our rundown of Sid Chaplin on hold for a moment, Let's sail on to the man who starred with him in this picture. That would be actor and future director Wesley Ruggles. Now, Ruggles was born on June 11, 1889 in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles, California. Ruggles, who would eventually become a prolific director, got his start after leaving high school. He performed on stages and stock companies and musical comedies up and down the West Coast. Turning to his obituary from the January 10th, 1972 edition of the New York Times, we learn about his transition to screen acting. The Sobet reads, In 1914, he entered motion pictures as a keystone cop with Max Sennett. From acting, he graduated to film cutter and director. Mr. Ruggles left Sennett to direct, with Charlie Chaplin, the comedian's last six pictures for SNA. Chalk this up to another instance of our research team and interns taking us literally when we wanted Chaplin-related content. Now, despite his cinematic success, service to his country would pull Ruggles into the U.S. Army. The New York Times explains the mix of film and fighting, and the interesting bit is that to two, they weren't mutually exclusive, right? So the Times writes, A period of service with Phytograph in the Selznick Company, where he made pictures starring Alice Joyce and Owen Moore, brought Mr. Ruggles up to 1917 when he entered the Army as a private in the Signal Corps. He left the Army as First Lieutenant after having served 18 months overseas 
and compiling film histories of the 26th Division in France and the 3rd Army in Germany. It's really cool that he was able to keep his pursuits going, despite the terrible machine of war. And this isn't the first time we've heard this, and it's amazing that these creative film types can come back after something so terrible with such a fervor to do something artistic and creative, and even do it while they're serving, which is really cool. So by 1917, he was making moves and movies, here and abroad. By that I mean sitting in the director's chair. Whilst in that seat, he would helm over 80 movies, both shorts and features, between 1917 and 1946. His 1931 western flick, Cimarron, got all kinds of Oscar buzz and love. In fact, it became the first western to win an Academy Award, and Ruggles himself was nominated for Best Director, and both of those were just a couple of the seven total nominations the film received. Through his time as a director and producer, he worked with some of the biggest names in show business. Some of the marquee names on that list include Clark Gable, Mae West, Cary Grant, Bing Crosby, Irene Dunn, and John Barrymore, just to name a handful. According to the New York Times, in 1944, Mr. Ruggles was signed by J. Arthur Rank as a producer-director to make pictures in England and America for a world market. He made no popular films in the last 20 years. Now, despite the harshness of this final bit of the obituary, it technically was sort of true. Newspapers of the day were in no hurry to overly fawn over someone, especially in death. Not too sure what it says about me, but these harsh obits kind of crack me up a little bit. His final gig was directing the British musical London Town in 1946. And for all his successes, though, this last production ended up being a bit of a flop. Ruggles died in 1972, January 8th to be exact, where he died after suffering a stroke in Santa Monica Convalescent Hospital. He was 84 years old at the time of his death and was living in Beverly Hills. The director was interred at Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California. In appreciation for all of his contributions to the film industry, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which you yourself can check out at 6400 Hollywood Boulevard. So with those life stories being told, divin' into a little bit, Let's talk about the movie itself, the reason we're here, A Submarine Pirate of 1915. Now, this short was directed by Charles Avery and the aforementioned Sidney Chaplin. In an article entitled Mysterious Island, the other Chaplin for the CatalinaIslander.com, Jim Watson writes, Sidney was not only an actor, but also tried his hand at directing. One of his first and probably most successful efforts was the silent The Submarine Pirate, released in 1915. This pioneering comedy was one of the first movies filmed at Catalina using underwater footage. Now, as the movie opens, we get our first introduction to Sid Chaplin's sort of trampish-like character. He is an employee of a fairly ritzy hotel. Needless to say, he is not the best and brightest as far as hospitality workers go. Next, we are introduced to a mysterious inventor who is sitting back and smoking a cigar. In this film, he is played by Glenn Cavender. Cavender was a Tucson, Arizona-born actor who got his start on vaudeville stages before moving on to work with Max Sennett's Keystone Cops, amongst many other Sennett-produced pictures. He also helmed three Sennett films in the mid-teens. He would hop around a few more studios through the 20s with middling success. He can, however, count the 1926 Buster Keaton classic The General as one major role on his resume. As the sound world took over the silence, Cavender's roles would shrink with only minor roles to his name up to his retirement in 1949. 
Cavender would die on February 9, 1962, at the age of 78. Next in our line of opening film character introductions is the Aventor's accomplice, played by Wesley Ruggles, whom we talked about just a second ago. We see that the two men are to have a clandestine meeting of some sort. Before things can get too serious, we get some great physical comedy from Sid, as he falls down a flight of stairs and lands right in front of the accomplice. The boss is coming, so all the employees try to get cleaned up from Sid's shenanigans and look somewhat presentable. Sid fails and gets attacked and kicked by his blowhard boss. This mess soon turns into a gunfight between Sid and a man with a broken leg, who inexplicably is packing heat and starts firing on Sid. But, in amongst all this wildness, there's a high society woman who sees all this going on. She passes out, and when she, when she comes to, she sees Sid causing all this trouble, so she attacks him with her umbrella. After escaping her, he focuses on helping this peach of a young lady to her room. He gives her a big kiss, only to be rebuffed as she enters her room alone. Heading back down, Sid sees the society woman waiting to attack him again. Instead, he switches things up and makes it so the inventor ends up taking that quick bashing via mistaken identity. Next, in the midst of all this madness, the inventor heads to the restaurant to have a meal with his accomplice. Sid, too, escapes long enough to serve as waiter to help him and his accomplice. He serves him fruit from his pockets, and the gag pays off when he pulls out an enormous loaf of bread from his front pantal zone and chops off pieces for them. Now, this was a super fun bit. He's pulling out plates. He's pulling out food. He's pulling out flower displays. He's pulling out everything from his pants, and it just really looks cool and was super smooth. During this scene... Sid makes a trip to the kitchen. For all you eagle eyes out there, one of the cooks is a young and uncredited Harold Lloyd. He's basically an extra here. There's nothing really to see or remember other than the fact that he exists here in this space. I love when you can go back to older films and see stars before they were household names. Now, while he's in the kitchen, Sid does some more really cool physical gags with plates and flued. And a lot of the stuff he's doing is really slick, really impressive, and you can definitely see why this movie took off as well as it did. Now, back to the inventor and his accomplice. We finally get to see what they're talking about and planning. My submarine lies in the harbor, the inventor says as he hands his accomplice the paperwork and submerging key. They will give you full command, he adds. He also hands him a newspaper clipping. The headline reads, Passenger Steamer Sailing Today with Large Shipment of Gold. Sounds like a pretty solid plan. Use the sub to steal the gold. Solid, straightforward, what could possibly go wrong? Well, to start with, that umbrella-wielding lady from earlier sits next to the inventor and the accomplice. And they both have similar-looking little bags, little briefcases. So I think you can tell where this is going to go. This leads to some comedy hijinks with Sid as he serves the gentleman and the angry lady. Needless to say, many a pratfall mess is made. As Sid is doing his thing, he overhears the two men talking about their subplot. The ingenious Sid rigs up a telephone to look like a flower arrangement to better eavesdrop on the two. One of the things he hears is that the signal to board the sub is to whistle three times under the pier. Sid head back to, heads back to the dining room with purpose. 
He wants to get on that sub. He'll do whatever it takes to get on that sub. He uses his job as a waiter to pull an old switcheroo with the ladies' bag and the inventor's bag that look exactly the same in order to get that submerging key from the inventor. He pulls off the heist and is gone before anyone realizes. With the keys to a gold-stealing sub, Sid heads off to an Army-Navy secondhand store where he purchases a silly, olden-day naval suit, complete with big hat and tassels. I'll make Captain Kidd look like a piker, he says. Back at the hotel, the inventor and his accomplice sit back and smoke it up as they laugh about the spoils they're about to reap. But it's then that the inventor realizes he has the wrong bag. It's not his sub-supply bag, but that of the Umbrella Lady. But now it's too late. Sid is making his way to the pier as the cruise ship passes him by. He wastes no time whistling for his pickup. He is soon picked up by the pirate submarine. Now aboard the sub, which is above water, he hands the papers to the first mate who reads them and reiterates Sid is now in command. A lot of the silliness happens here and we see this man should never, ever be in command of anything at all. Down in the sub, Captain Sid gets a lesson in submerging. Because he's a bit of a goof, he starts pulling levers and knobs haphazardly, which causes the sub to submerge even though not all of the doors are closed, causing water to rush in. Not a great start, and at this point, the crew realizes he's an idiot. With the sub back topside, Sid heads up to try and spot the treasure ship. As he is up top, nearly falling off, the crew comes up with a scheme to haze their new commander. They decide to submerge with Captain Sid still on the surface. This is some really cool action comedy stuff here as Sid Chaplin runs around as the submarine goes underwater. It looked pretty wild and dangerous and was pulled off with great precision. While his brother constantly fought for greater creative control throughout his 36-film tenure at Keystone in 1914, Sid was initially more interested in exploring the intricacies of comedy. While the Gussel character had the same comically unrefined approach as many of the Keystone stalwarts, by the time of A Submarine Pirate, Sid had modified his approach to settle more comfortably within the changing mode of comedy that had been initiated by Brother Charlie. By this time, Charlie was making his transitional comedies at the SNA Studios, reinventing slapstick as one that stems from a central character that has some depth and substance, writes Jim, James L. Niebauer in an article entitled Lisa K. Stein's Sid Chaplin, a biography for the Senses of Cinema website. So, at this point, Sid is on the sub as it begins to dive. He is hanging on for dear life as it submerges. As it is underwater now, the crew looks out the periscope and sees Sid, the waiter, turned captain, is making silly faces and trying to stay alive, even as fish swim into his mouth. Everyone on board gets a good chuckle in at their incompetent superior before raising the sub once again. Now, back inside and soaking wet, Captain Sid demands answers as the crew apologizes. The next segment we get introduces us to the treasure boat that this sub has been tasked with plundering. The ship slowly creeps towards its prey. Sid is atop the sub as it approaches the unsuspecting liner. The passengers of the ship are panic-stricken as they see the sub coming at them. The captain of the treasure ship is alerted that a secret submarine is coming for them. Captain Sid gives the command for the ship to surrender. The ship eventually surrenders to Sid and the sub. The sub then pulls up alongside the ship and Sid and some other crew dudes board. Sid tells the opposing captain that he craves their gold. 
The captain seems to not be too interested in handling, handing anything over to this doofus of a captain. So, Sid orders his crew to take aim and shoot his counterpart. Now you'll do it, Sid asks. The captain gives in and tells Sid and his crew where to go to get the gold. With the raiders distracted, the captain makes a brazen move to call for help. Luckily, a Navy gunboat hears their pleas for assistance. This, com this gunboat comes tearing in as Sid finds out about the call for help. He is none too happy with this and pulls out his sword, only for the opposing captain to pull out a gun and start firing. This causes the pirate crew to jump off the liner and retreat to their sub. With everyone back on board the sub, we see the people on the liner have 10 minutes to clear the boat or the sub will fire a torpedo and sink the whole shebang. The passengers are madly scrambling to get into their lifeboats. Back on the sub, we see Captain Sid has been careless with the submerging key. In fact, he uses it to hit his first mate. Sid and the submerging key are now have now made their way to the torpedo room where he comically prepares to fire said torpedo. The first mate goes after Sid, realizing he has the submerging key, but Sid refuses to part with it. The two fight for a second before Sid gets him out of the way and continues to prepare the torpedo launch. Since his incompetence is fated to doom this mission, Captain Sid accidentally gets loaded up with the torpedo and fired. Luckily, he lets go and is able to make his way back into the ship via the torpedo tube he was fired from. Now the Navy ship is making a beeline to the sub, which is still above water since Sid has the submerging key. The first mate tells Captain Sid that they need to submerge ASAP. The gunship is firing on them. Sid agrees, but realizes he lost the key when he was shot out of the sub. They are stuck topside. Sid tells the crew they must fight, since submerging is no longer an option. They pull out a submarine gun. Sid fires the first shot. He fires again. Unfortunately, the marksman of the sea ends the careers of these pirates as the shots from the gunship hit the sub squarely. In fact, one bullet gets Captain Sid right in the rear. Eventually, the barrage of shots from the gunship put enough holes in the sub to sink it, and our final shot of Captain Sid is sticking his head out of a big hole, only to be bitten by a comically huge fish. The End In an article for the Century Film Project at centuryfilmproject.org, we learn about the real-life parallels of submarine action at the time this film was made. The article reads, At the time of release, submarine warfare was no joking matter in the U.S., as Germany had moved to unrestricted warfare in the Atlantic, and sank the RMS Lusitania in May 1915. The movie came out in November, killing more than 100 American passengers. Sid's character, therefore, is hardly sympathetic, and there may have been some satisfaction in seeing him get his comeuppance at the hands of a Navy vessel. To be sure, all the violence in this movie is cartoonish slapstick, and no one is shown in danger of actually drowning or being blown up, but there may be an element of propaganda to it nonetheless. I wouldn't rank it as highly as Charlie's better work, but it's an interesting and relatively large budget keystone comedy of the time. As for me, I thought this was a really interesting flick. It was a tale of two movies, if you will. What starts off as your usual kooky folks at a hotel shenanigans soon turns into an adventure on the high seas. If the words submarine and pirate weren't in the title, there would be no reason to suspect we would get what we got. I do appreciate those kinds of narrative twists, and it certainly worked out in this instance. 
The hotel portion of the movie really does a great job of settling, setting up the incompetence and goofiness of the character that Sid Chaplin plays. He does great work here, especially in the scenes in the restaurant and the kitchen. His brand of physical comedy is super crisp and amazing to watch. He was so capable of great work, it's a shame he never really got to show it more. He definitely has the chops to be up there with his brother in terms of quality physical comedy. While we're on the topic of the physical gag, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. This flick had some really cool looking moments that seemed dangerous to film. A lot of the stuff that Chaplin did atop the submarine was pretty nuts. I wish behind the scenes featurettes were a thing back in the day, because I would be so, so, so fascinated to see how they filmed and planned these shots. It was crazy and dangerous to see Sid climbing up on top of a submarine as it was diving. This makes me think of the Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible stuff of today. Like, you see these wild things of climbing on a submarine as it's diving. And I feel nervous enough just on a boat in general, let alone to be climbing on a sub as it's going under. But there is some really cool stuff at the heart of this movie. Some really cool action sequences that are definitely worth checking out. I also felt like the underwater shots, though few in number, were really impressive for a 1915 film. Again, it would be fascinating to see exactly what equipment was used and how they captured this footage. And I did love seeing Sid get chomped on by a big, weird-looking fish. It was an oddly satisfying end shot to end the film on. Now, this is totally worth watching to anyone out there who may be on the fence about giving it a go. Especially to anyone like me, who had no clue there were other chaplains out there. Even in appearance, Sid has a tramp-like look about him, and you can see the apple doesn't pratfall far from the tree. Even though my uneducated and unprofessional opinion can only take us so far. So let's turn our sights to some actual reviews of this film. First, let's go back to 1915 when this movie was released and see what industry paper Variety had to say about Sid Chaplin and his aquatic adventures. Now this quote's a bit long, but really informative. This is from the November 19, 1915 edition of Variety, where we read, To acclaim it a success in every measure would be but a mild expression of appreciation for a submarine pirate is undoubtedly one of the best comedy features ever produced by this or any other company. It entails some really sensational stunts performed in mid-air, as well as a series of thrillers with the ocean bed as a locale. It also introduces the use of a genuine submarine as a comedy prop, which in, an, in itself carries innumerable possibilities, every one of which was fully utilized to advantage. The story, as usual, is light, depicting the experiences of a waiter, chaplain, who overhears the plotting of a pair of arch pirates and proceeds to assume command of their craft, a submarine, and attack on the high seas a gold-laden steamer. A government gunboat comes to the rescue after the submarine has sunk its prey and with a number of well-placed shots destroys the underseas affair. Apparently, both are totally destroyed and the effect leaves a wonderful impression. The interior and exterior views of the submarine in action are decidedly interesting, for the direction necessitates a detailed explanation of the submerging process, an educational point in and of itself. Getting to Chaplin himself, he is gradually showing results from his association with Senate, and will eventually develop into one of the screen's best fun makers. For he seems to carry all the versatility required for the part, and in addition shoulders a personality that registers well. 
The action pictured atop a skyscraper gave the feature an added strength at some proportion. Supporting Chaplin, the most prominent in the cast, are Glenn Cavender, Wesley Ruggles, and Phyllis Allen. It's a great comedy feature, and regardless of the accompanying productions, it was really worth the admission price itself. Now, for a more recent review, let's look to an article for popmatters.com by Thomas Britt. In the article, Britt is giving a review of the Max Senate Collection Volume 1, where he talks about our spotlight film. Britt writes, The final film from 1915 is A Submarine Pirate, another film starring and co-directed by Sid Chaplin. The scale of the film is considerably larger than the Gussel Shorts. While the production design and cinematography of The Adventures at Sea are impressive, overall, the film sinks under the weight of its own plot and over-reliance on action set pieces. Now, as we lay this episode to rest, it's time to find out where your favorite stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic comedians and funny men on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars that have entertained us so much. So the movie we're talking about today was a decidedly aquatic adventure. But we must look to the skies if we want to learn more about Sid Chaplin. This is where we pick up the story after having paused on his bio for our usual movie break a little bit earlier. So, during this part of his life, we're going back to 1919-ish, let's say, Sid set his business goggles to aviation. In May 1919, he, along with pilot Emery Herman Rogers Jr., developed and launched the first privately owned domestic American airline, appropriately named the Sid Chaplin Airline Company, based in Santa Monica, California. The existence of this venture was short-lived, but still incredibly important to the history of flight. Sid and his partners had the first airplane showroom for their Curtis airplanes. It offered observation flights for $10 and round-trip flights to San Diego for $150. According to the website www.ilapedia.com, that's I-S-L-A-pedia.com, we learn about some of the really cool ins and outs of this business. The article reads, Charlie... Or the article reads, Chaplin Airlines, Santa Catalina Island, was formed in 1919 by Sid Chaplin, half-brother to Charlie Chaplin, and Emery Rogers, who had built an airport in Los Angeles and were Curtis Aircraft dealers. It was the first regularly scheduled passenger service in the United States, and the air service shuttled people from the mainland to Santa Catalina Island, along with bundles of the Los Angeles Examiner. For the Catalina flights, they purchased a three-seat Curtis Seagull flying boat and began service in July 1919. The article continues, Chaplin Airlines continued their service to Catalina Island until September of 1920, when tighter restrictions were passed regarding licensing of pilots and the implementation of taxes on planes and flights. Though their daily service lasted only two seasons, Chaplin Airlines was the first in a very long list to use seaplanes for transportation between the mainland and Catalina Island, the last of which ended in 1989. The chaplain service closed in that September and was not restarted, but went into the history books as California's first airline. Now here are some fun, fun, some fun side facts about the chaplain air service before we move on completely. Now, Emery Rogers, the pilot, conducted the first round-trip L.A. to San Francisco flight in one 24-hour period, and Charlie Chaplin is said to have taken his first airplane flight in one of Sid's planes, as did many other big names of the time. 
But despite all this airfare and high flyingness, Sid still found time to make a couple appearances with his brother in the, in the early 20s. With his wild airplane notes sewed, it was time for Sid to return to acting regularly when his later films, with his later films, including 1924's The Perfect Flapper with Colleen Moore and a Christie comedy and Charlie's Aunt following in 1925. He would also go on to make a handful of features for Warner Brothers between 1925 and 1927. Now this brings us to a decidedly dark bit in the career of Sid Chaplin. On a professional level, it would see his final screen appearance before entering the sordid world of cinematic scandal. This path to infamy started with his final film, 1928's A Little Bit of Fluff. So let's talk some more about that final flick. As the 20s were coming to an end, Sid C. sought greener pastures across the pond when he signed a deal to make pictures in England with British International Pictures Company. The only film he made there would be 1928's A Little Bit of Fluff, which was meant to be followed by a flick named Mumming Birds. Now, A Little Bit of Fluff wasn't meant to be his final movie, but that is ultimately how this, his film career would end. In an article for The Guardian entitled, Behind Britain's Silent Movies, Sex, Drugs, and Scandal Struck Stars, writer Matthew Sweet explains the violent downfall of Sid Chaplin. And with an article about sex and scandal, you know it's not going to end well for old Sid Chaplin. Sweet writes, Pre-production on the follow-up Mumming Birds came to a sudden halt in July of 1929, when a bit player named Molly Wright accused Chaplin of what he later described as a cannibalistic attack, a violent sexual assault in which he was alleged to have bitten off one of her nipples. Chaplin hired a private detective to dig up dirt on Wright and her mother and made a precautionary retreat to a hotel in Belgium. I have done everything in my power, he told her friend, to keep it out of the papers. Sid's career ultimately came to an end in 1929 with that accusation of assault. He left England and in 1930 declared bankruptcy. In 1935, or 36, depending on where you read, his first wife Minnie died from complications from breast cancer surgery. He later remarried and he and his second wife Henriette, also known as Gypsy, stayed together until his death. Neither marriage resulted in children. After World War II, Sid and Gypsy lived most of their remaining life together in Europe. After a long illness, Sid died on April 16, 1965 in Nice, France. Oddly enough, Sid passed away on his brother Charlie's 76th birthday. Sid Chaplin is buried beside Gypsy in Clarence Montrose Cemetery near Vevey, France. Now, as this episode returns to the surface, we want to thank you for sharing these high sea hijinks with us. As we often are wont to do here at the Golden Silent Films Podcast, this was a fascinating look at something we didn't even know existed. And if you've been following our social media, you'll notice we've been trying to get hashtag submarine saturday off the ground which probably won't work since it's i don't think a thing but it's worth a try right did you enjoy this waterlogged adventure what are some of your favorite ocean-based films who are some of your favorite silent era chaplin family members let us know all that and more at the various social media hangouts of the golden silent films podcast and on that note if you have forgotten we are on instagram and twitter let us know what you think about this episode what movies past or present see or no see do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence is constantly expanding, and we need your input to plan out all our future views as we embark on season three of the Golden Silent Films podcast. You can do all of that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and Golden Silence One on Twitter. 
And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us like crazy, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super, super appreciate all of your awesome support, and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to do bigger and better episodes for all of you. So with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for your fine listening, and don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. <laughs>